You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. We, uh, we're getting a lot of each other today, Bracken. Got a lot of face-to-face time. Do you think we had one of the better conversations we've ever had or one of the worst conversations we've ever had just before this? It was a great conversation. It was. Was there anything of substance and merit to the average listener? <laughs> that I don't know. That's fair. I don't know. I think your royalties will be rolling in, but it won't be immediate. I think I think your royalties will be coming to you later on down the line. Yeah, I mean, there are going to be book deals, probably a major motion picture made off of the conversation that occurred in that room, but it's not going to be immediate. Never why, don't is. You, why don't you tell the people what we uh, – we just got done recording another podcast episode for the Race Brain podcast, which hopefully you guys are all listening to, but – Bracken, what what did we spend the last hour and a half talking about? Nonsense and mod. <laughs> it sounds more ridiculous to say it on this podcast for some reason. It does. Mod. When I was saying the word mod in there, it, it flowed. It was good. I say it here and it feels like a foreign word. Mod. You, you seemed a little reticent to have those words come out yeah. of your mouth. It was entertaining. It was. Go listen to it. it it's It's a good conversation. I think. I think it's worth listening to if you have any interest in running. I agree. So you, um, you're back from your trip now? You, um, back. you made it back overseas? How, how was the second half of your trip? Second half was good. Changing expectations of trips helps a lot. You know, I decided I'm not going to expect to sleep. I'm not going to expect just, you know, things like that to go. And then the, it becomes a lot of fun because then everything you get a bonus and – you're in Ireland and it's still awesome. And I was so, so grateful I didn't run that race. How come? Because I went to, on our last day there, last day? Yeah. I wanted to do a 25-mile run. It would loop the island. No, we're on a peninsula, not, not an island, but there's called the Cliff Walk Path. And it just goes up and over the cliff that rings the peninsula, and it's pretty awesome. So do that, loop all the way around, and then run through the the downtown beach section and then out to a two-mile, three-mile-long island that's only like 800 meters wide. I was going to ring that island and then run it back. just wanted to do something big on the last day. Mm-hmm. And at 3.45, I turned off my 5.15 alarm because <laughs> I still was awake. Oh and that's goodness. how that entire trip was going. I was falling asleep somewhere how? between 2.30 and 5.00 every morning how did you not get into such sleep deprivation like after a couple of days that you didn't just get back on schedule that's what happens to me is yeah miserable for a couple days but that was the plan the first the very first day i had a bad night's sleep and the next day my brother was like you know what you need to do is just go with it the moment you wake up stay up and suck it up for a day and you'll be back on and that's what other people were doing i'm like all right i'm just gonna do that and i accidentally slept in I fell asleep at like 5.30 in the morning, and I slept until 12.30. 
My dad was making waffles or pancakes that morning, and I knew he was making breakfast. And I woke up and I smelled it. I was like, oh, it's like 6.30 or 7 a.m. I'm just going to get like a half hour more of sleep. What I didn't realize is that they were reheating it already. (laughs) (laughs) And it was 11 a.m. And so I slept another hour. And so I slept till noon. So I only got, what, six and a half hours of sleep, which is enough. But it was way too much for waking up at noon and wanting to get back to sleep that night. So then from then on, I just would sleep from like 4 to 8 or 5 to 9 or 5 to 7.30 each morning wild it was weird so going and doing a six a seven hour race seven to eight hour race off of maybe no sleep maybe an hour and a half would have just been horrendous it would have been a dnf waiting to happen probably i mean i can imagine especially after subsequent nights in a row of low sleep and it would have been it would have been day number two and so the first night i got an hour and a half and then that next night, I didn't fall asleep till five, but the race starts at six, so I would have gotten no sleep that night. So I would have been going off of one and a half hours of sleep, combined with the two and a half I got on the flight, maybe two on the flight, so three and a half hours of sleep in three days. It's it would terrible. Have been, it would have been a, like a recipe for a DNF. Did you uh, did you look up the results and did I you did. feel any feelings towards those? By, by that point, no. Yeah. I was you, so glad by that point I wasn't racing. That. The universe really confirmed your decision not to to run this race. I feel like like there's no no regrets, as they say. <laughs> nope, no regrets. Yeah, you gotta feel good about that. I do, and so I have uh, surgery now one week from yesterday. Wow, and I made a decision, Kirk, that I haven't told you about. Kind of told you about. It. I was gonna go big leading up to it. Mm-hmm. Got a couple bigger runs. Felt little beat up and felt good and yesterday i got off the treadmill i did like six miles at about noon okay maybe 11 a.m and i got off and i got in the shower i thought you know what i'm gonna do this week i'm gonna run my first hundred mile week come on because like we said what are the odds i get hurt in one week like 50 percent i'm durable running wise that's life's been rough on me but i still don't have a running injury and i don't think i'm tempting fate maybe i am (laughs) maybe i'm tempting (laughs) so i went back out and i did 10 uh at about 3 30 p.m on the trails so i got 16 in yesterday and this morning i woke up and did 10 i'm gonna get done with this and go get another five i'm derek you'll be at at like 40 miles in two days oh yeah 31 16 yesterday 15 today oh okay well, that's nice, I ran man. the day before, so. But anyways, I was sitting there like, oh, woe is me. I'm looking in the mirror. I lost some weight in Ireland by not sleeping, just being awake, burning more calories yeah, and yeah. running more. And then you don't eat the same on vacation. And with our family, it's it's not like you go out to eat every day. We're out, we mm-hmm. make all our food when we travel with my parents. So I just, I lost like four pounds on vacation. And I was looking in the mirror, like now it's been three and a half weeks. I haven't lifted four and I'm starting to see that little change. Like, yep, yep, yep. You know, you start to shrink a little bit and knowing I've got another week till surgery, it'll be a month of no lifting going into surgery almost. And then it'll be another close to a month coming out and just starting to play that. Oh, woe is me. And I thought, who did we just talk to? Derek Rubis. Derek freaking Rubis. And what is that man doing? A whole lot more De- with a whole lot worse. Derek Rubis so in honor also. Of Derek. Okay. In honor Continue. of Derek, I'm going to run a 100-mile week. 
because he runs 80 to 100 every week and I'm going to do half of it inside just like Derek. I'll do it on the treadmill just to challenge my conviction because you can stop at any point you want when you're indoor. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, man. Good for you. I'll be curious how the body holds up and feels towards the end of the week. Um, For those of you who are wondering about Derek Rubis, who we interviewed a few weeks ago, um, he said he didn't want a treadmill. I don't know if I announced this on the podcast or not, but we reached out to him to see if we could fund somehow getting him a treadmill. And he said he much prefers to run inside uh, in the house around wherever he goes versus on a treadmill. So the man is committed to his training regimen. I asked him the other other day, I said, Derek, how's your training going, man? How's everything going? He said, my training is going fantastic, he says. So his glass is half full. Do you want to check with your parents if they (laughs) want you to have a treadmill? Uh, I didn't ask him that. You're going to have to invest in new flooring after uh, this is all said and done, though. It's a very Derek response. And we, you and I both kind of assumed he might not want it. Yep, and he didn't. So we tried to do our part, but no such luck. Well, I myself, and we'll get into today's episode here shortly, I uh, I ran zero miles last week. Big, fat goose egg. And uh, I had no real interest in running at all. In Why? fact... Why did you run zero? It was the week after my 50K that I had done uh, last Saturday. And mm-hmm. I haven't taken a week off of running can't remember the last time I took a week off of running and so it was time and it's funny I was I slept 10 hours two nights in a row woke up with the last thing wanting to do to be to exercise I forced three assault bike sessions on myself Mm -hmm. just to sweat a little and the last one on Friday which is six days removed from the 50k I I hated every minute of it I was like I don't even want to be I don't want to be doing this I just don't and so I just needed the reset so I took Saturday, Sunday off and started to get the itch Saturday and Sunday. And then, uh, yesterday, Monday, I, I went up for my first recovery run really invigorated and felt good. And so, um, eight days off I took, so I'm back to it this week. Um, starting to conjure up some secret racing plans, which I haven't, uh, Mm -hmm. discussed with you. Um, so working on that as well. I like that, but I'm back to it. I like it a lot, Kirk. Mm Mm-hmm. So to close out our intro, if you were going to run a 100-mile week yep. off of not running big mileage prior to it, how would you set up your week? On a seven-day week, that is like 14.2 a day. Yeah. Treadmill saves me. That Nordic track is really soft. So I probably would have to do at least a third to a half of my mileage on there just to ensure I feel okay. Mm-hmm. Which is what I plan to do, is half of it on there. I'd throw vert out the window, which gasp yeah. is hard for me to do, but I would. And then I would hit the re- I'd hit probably the other, let's say a third on the treadmill, a third on the trails, just to make sure I'm on soft terrain. And then the other third I would, I would hit on the roads just because it would be nice to go fast and efficient. And I'd probably do yeah. four split days. I'd probably do maybe five, but four for sure. What are you thinking? Uh, almost the exact same thing. I'm going to do it on the treadmill, half of it running between three and six percent just alternating days six percent yesterday three percent today just enough of a incline bump to take all the loading off my leg or most of the loading off my legs Mm -hmm. and then i'm actually not doing any pavement if i can help it just to try to mitigate any risk Mm -hmm. and i just chose the flattest trails i could find around here least rocky are you going to try to bank some mileage so that you can coast in, or are you going to save a big one for the end and go out go out in flames, as they say? 
Well, my plan is to do 10 and 5 or 9 and 6 uh, for the first three days, maybe four days, as I go as I feel. And then I'm going to probably do the lake path or something like that on the last day. Which is 21 miles? 21. Are you going to so, blow it out on any workout? Or are you just going and running however you feel? Zone three and all day. Who cares at this point? Yeah, a lot of two, a lot of three, um, which for me always leads to cut downs. So yesterday I started to do that. I turned, I went five out on the trail, turned around as my second run of the day, which was only three hours after the three and a half hours after the first run. Mm-hmm. So you're a little there starting it out. And as I turned around, I looked down, I was like 640. I was like, okay, this is where I'll start clicking down. And like five minutes later, I reminded myself, I want to feel this way on day five. Yeah. Not today. I have to do this again tomorrow. And then again, the next day. And then again the next day. So let's let's pump the brakes. So I'll have some cut downs, but I'm going to do no scripted workouts. That uh, The lake path will be the big day. But what that will allow me to do is then on Friday, Saturday, I'll be able to go singles and go oh, yeah. easy. Because if I do 15 or 16 every day, I bank basically a mile to two miles every day. So you can go like 10 on, thir- on Friday and Saturday and then 21 on Sunday and be about there? Yeah, if I do... I mean, if I do, if I do 15 a day, that's 105. So if I remove, that's five over. And if I do a 21 day, that's 11 over. So then I actually can cut like two tens or I can do a a five and a 15 or however I want to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'll probably coast Friday, Saturday, and then blow it out Sunday and then surgery Monday. We'll have to get caught up on the nuances of surgery and your recovery. Um, mm-hmm. maybe we should save that for next Tuesday. I'm very curious. I have a lot of questions about that, but, uh, I've had a lot of people talk to me about it. A lot yeah. of people that have had the exact same. Yeah. In Vegas, I probably had 20, 20 guys come up to me and talk about their same inguinal hernia surgery. They had many people have done it twice. A lot of people gave me some, here's what I did wrong the first time, or here's what I did right. So it was nice to, nice to hear that. I appreciate the community helping me out. Mm, that is nice. Yeah, you see, you hear about it. Not to like, you know, commonize if that's a word your situation, but gosh, once you start talking about it, the more people you realize that have gone through hernia of some sort and surgery of some sort, it's super common. Um, I think it's the single most common male surgery performed each year in the U.S. It has to be other than like a vasectomy, probably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh-huh. Similar region of the body, I guess. What if they could do both simultaneously? Maybe you should inquire. Yeah. Ain't nobody holding Bracken back. These are the things that really make you think. They really are. Yep, that and mod. Um, all right, well, let's jump into today. Why don't we? Um, yeah. You want to set us up? Yeah, I think we should wrap up what we've been talking about. We had this kind of a mini-series we found ourselves in, which is the how to approach what happens during a race what to do after a bad race. Uh, We talked with VJ Jones about how to not leave skills behind. We talked about a couple different things that just kind of all fit in line. And there were a few unanswered questions that bear mentioning. And we had some good questions from people about those topics. And I think we just wrap a bow tie on the series, this unintentional series of, of how to handle success, failure, 
um, everything in between with how you move forward with training. I guess it started after after that High Rocks weekend when I talked with some high-level athletes, and we're just surprised that a lot of them are making the same mistakes a lot of the rest of us are making yep. and trying to learn from everyone else's mistakes for you guys. So we're going to put a bow tie on it today. How do you feel about that? I really, I really feel good about that, Bracken. We got two follow-up suggestions after we did uh, the what to do. Like, you had a bad race. What next uh, last week? And the two questions basically said, well, let's, like, talk about the other sides of the coin. Like, how should you follow up having a good race or your best race to date? And then the ultimately worst side of the coin, which is what to do after a DNF. How do you come mm-hmm. back from that? And so we didn't think we could necessarily make an entire episode out of each of those. So we wanted to kind of touch on both today in our episode. And yeah, that that should complete the bow tie, shouldn't it? It really should. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just state from the start here that this is going to be a combat sport analogy day for me. Oh, you already planned it out, huh? As you told me, in a, you sent you sent a text to Lisa and I this morning. I I thought, oh, that'd be interesting to do. And then I got on the treadmill to run 10. Mm-hmm. And I actually, before this, I was on the treadmill running 10 and I was watching, I only watch racing or sports for the most part on YouTube when I'm on the treadmill. Yep. And I was watching Chael Sonnen. Chael Sonnen is a ex-UFC fighter. Now he's a media personality. He was super polarizing and divisive. Uh, one of those guys who basically played the WWE heel role. In combat sports, he would say anything, do anything to rile people up and sell tickets. And he basically talked himself into a title fight, and but was also a pretty good fighter as well. But mm-hmm. he has a, he does a podcast now, and he has this one segment where he just sits there alone in front of the camera and talks for five to ten minutes on one single topic. And it's not a rant, and it's not a soapbox, and it's not a PSA, but it's a little bit of all of it at once. He just, it's like a very the smallest version of the training Tuesday we could do, but I really like his stuff. So I watched like eight of those this morning and he was talking about some things and it just got me thinking. So I'm going to have a lot of combat sport analogies today by a lot. I think two. Okay. Well, yours are pretty good. So I have high expectations. Do you want to jump in with, is there something you just want to dive in with in, in this realm? No, they're just overarching themes that go well with DNFs and with good races. Well, I think we should start with, um, should we start with the bad or the good? The bad being the DNF, the good being the good. What do you want to start with? Let's, let's start with the bad. We finished, we started, we started with bad. We finished up a bad race episode. Now let's go disaster. Yep. Bad isn't the end of the spectrum. DNF is the end of the spectrum. It's true. It's true. Well, end of the spectrum might be not even able to show up to the start line, but we don't need to dive into that. At least you made it. But it Kirk, probably I DNF'd is my first race as a sophomore, I believe, in high school. Why? And I did not DNF another race for a long time. It was col- it was uh, the conference cross country meet. My sophomore year of high school is at our home course at McCarty Park. It's a fast course, and it was very cold. Very cold probably in the teens which isn't uncommon to have happen during cross country mm-hmm, in the, the midwest and something happened to my body i to this day i don't know what it was but i started fading but feeling weird like dull and fuzzy not the typical thing you'd feel and there's they call it the thumb of the course after at about 
at the one and a half mile mark, there's a thumb. You go out and back on this little thumb that extends out at the very edge of the park. And I went out and I didn't come back. And people started coming over and I was on the ground in the fetal position. And I don't Mm. really know what happened. I was running. I was feeling bad. And then I didn't black out. I didn't go unconscious, but I just found myself falling to my knees and I was on my side and my fingers were locked up and my toes were locked up and my jaw was locked up. Scary. You knew you needed to stop running and you just slowly. But I don't remember having thought processes. I remember thinking like, don't fade, latch back on, don't fade. And then things happened and like, there's just this gray area where I wasn't unconscious, Mm. but my brain wasn't functioning. That does not sound good. So what was the end result of that? Well, they, they called an ambulance. People came running over and called an ambulance. The ambulance came in and they were running tests and on the way to the hospital or before we even left, like 50, we were sitting there for like 10 minutes as they're doing blood pressure and talking to me and I just warmed up Mm. as I warmed up and they gave me fluids, things just unlocked. And right away Mm. I was like, nothing hurts. My temperature was fine. I said, like, I don't have a headache. I can, I can enunciate everything clearly. I didn't have any bad symptoms. I wasn't dilated. I, and they didn't even take me to the hospital, which Mm. is probably like a different era, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) They just let me get out of the ambulance and go back. And so I walked over with the team and stayed there for awards. But they never really said what it was. It was something to having to do with adrenaline combined with redlining combined with the temperature that I just locked up. Hmm. I never got an answer to it. And it's never happened again in my life. I was probably 15. But that was my first DNF. And it was so embarrassing. But I didn't have a decision. I didn't have a say in the matter. But it was embarrassing because I was helpless. Someone could have walked up and done whatever they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Assault me, rob me, you know, just poke me with a stick. It didn't matter. I was utterly defenseless. My body had failed me. And that was my first DNF. My second DNF came when I quit at, oh, uh, when I got DQ'd from a race. In my third and fourth, I quit races. And so I have four DNFs in my life. And mm-hmm. I am extremely embarrassed about the two quits. I was embarrassed about my body failing me, and now I look back and think, it's embarrassing, but I'm not embarrassed. And Mm -hmm. then the second one was embarrassing because I was disqualified by failing the same obstacles three times right at the finish line and was removed from the race. They cut my ban, and I was done. Um, But the quitting is the most traumatic to me. So that is my history with DNFing. Mm -hmm. Two quits, one disqualification by means of failure, and one body failure. It's interesting to see because I was just watching. Um, oh shoot! Pre- three quits. I have three Wait. quits. What's the all? Other one? Uh, OCR Worlds and then Spartan World Championships in 2015 and then Spartan Ultra in 2019. What I've caused you to quit in 2015? What life. caused you to quit Spartan Worlds in 2015? Endless cramping. It got to the point where I couldn't even touch water with a toe, and my entire body would spasm and cramp. Ugh. And I, we still had to head back out on the mountain and they kept getting worse and lasting longer. And I thought eventually I'm just going to be stuck somewhere cramped. And I was down near the festival and I just gave in to the weakness and said, I'm going to cramp. I'm going to DNF either way. This is only mm-hmm. getting worse. There's still seven miles to go and like 1500 feet of vert. 
I'm going to get stuck somewhere. I might as well stay here. Hmm. Well, I have one. Uh, <clears throat> one DNF and of all time, that was a 50K in 2000. And my first attempt at a 50K in 2019 where I had no business being there, but this was due to injury. My intent was to run. I believe I could have run the entire thing, but uh, my foot had, had a foot issue and it was acting up and I decided to take a ride home at the turnaround to be smart. Yeah. But I didn't feel embarrassed about that or defeated. Um, I knew it was a possibility going into the race and it turned out it was. But I think there's like, well, and I just want to touch on something actually too is <clears throat> I'm trying to wrap my head around the DNF thing with like, like I was watching the pre-classic. I was watching the full broadcast while I was on the treadmill today. I almost got all the way through it, but you had people like pro athletes. This was a diamond league meet, which is pretty cool to happen at the pre-classic and um, you had some of the best in the world drop out. Uh, the, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Who He took second in the 5k. Paul Chalimo. Paul Chalimo just, just stepped off the track for no reason in the middle of 5k. He was an Olympic medalist. You see it, you see it happen a number of times throughout the races and nobody really seems to be bothered by it. And it's always an interesting conundrum with like the professional level track and field. Like you see it all the time in an Olympic final, you'll have one or two step off the track every race in the distance events Mm -hmm. in the Olympic final, but with no real questioning, like it must be for good reason. You have any theories on that? Well, without isolating a a region or a a nationality, it's a very but the Africans. African. Yeah. It's a very African mentality to race to win, and when that goes out the window, the goal is gone, and you return to training. You know, it's the same style of a lot of that East African training that we've talked about on here, where they will show up and run the pace of the world champions until they can't, and if yep. the champs are doing ten by thousand at 240 and you hang on for four they go home excited and said i ran four by thousand with at world championship quality today and that's a success no and 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 so that seems to be in paul chalimo is african i mean he's he is american through and through but he was born in africa and raised in that system and so he that that's his roots and so that in the pro realm I, i i never bat an eye when an african drops out of a race because they're there for different reasons than many other countries are. So I I don't see that as an issue. It's interesting to me when Europeans and Americans drop out of races because we don't have the same reasons for racing. And we seem to glamorize the finish-at-all-costs approach. Mm-hmm. So it's it's always strange, like you said, to watch an American on, on American soil track meet and see people just drop out. Yeah. And I, I think in some of their eyes, the DNF looks better than a really bad time if it's not their day from a sponsorship yes. realm or a credibility realm. Posting a bad time is sort of a death sentence. You do that a few times in a row and you're dropped sometimes. And so a DNF gets glossed right over for some reason in sponsors' eyes. And so I think that plays yeah. into it as well. I had a a couple teammates in college who would do that, who they were masters of manipulating their own mind. And they could mm-hmm. drop out of a race and have an excuse and walk over and tell us, like, oh, my calf didn't feel right, man. Or I just didn't have it today. And I uh, and they would use it like armor. Like, I'm not igni- – if I don't look at it, it didn't happen. Covering uh-huh. your eyes like a little kid. If I can't see you, you can't see me. If I can't see my result, I didn't run that time. And then I don't have to believe that I'm capable of that time. And they'd drop out and just convince themselves, didn't mean anything, move on. And they'd PR a week later. 
where it's a little costlier to me to drop out. I've always struggled after a DNF. Once you step off once, it becomes much easier to step off again. It's the same thing with cutting workouts short. I, I had six by a mile plan, but you know what? It hurts so much at three and four, I just stopped and didn't finish what I started. Yes, it makes yeah. sense to do that at times, um, stop the bleeding, so to speak. However, like once you do it once, it's like a gateway drug. It just opens the door to do it again. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the why matters. The yeah, why it does. really matters. Mm-hmm. So I've had, I've had quits. You haven't had a quit. Well, I did quit. The why matters. It did, yeah. I two times quit when I could have finished and should have finished, but quit because of ego, essentially. The place Mm. I wanted was gone, and I was starting to struggle, and I cut it short. The crampier in Killington, I don't really have any shame over that. I was going to go cramp for two two more hours on course and do further damage to myself. And as a result, a week later, I won I won the biggest prize purse I've ever won in OCR because my legs were able to recover in time and I put down a nice race. So yeah. in retrospect, I don't have any regrets. I quit for the right reason that day if there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in that sort of... two, I'm embarrassed. That's sort of the delineating piece is... If you have DNF'd, which I'm assuming a lot of you have here that are listening at this point, if you've raced enough, it's bound to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the best of the best, the toughest of the tough, so to speak, end up having a day that you can't anticipate. And we talked about what are the facts, right? Like race excuses versus race facts. And so the so first place you have to start with your DNF is what did I choose to quit in DNF or was there an extenuating circumstance in which this was actually the right decision? Um, or if it was medically forced and it was medically forced. So first of all, if you're in the camp where it was like the right decision or it was medically forced in your case in high school, or, and I would say cramping out is a real thing, unless you ask my buddy, TJ Schroffnagel, that's not no excuse cramping out Bracken. You got to cramp till you have Robdo. Otherwise you're not cramping enough. But point being, if you're in that camp and you understand why the DNF happened, you just need to kind of put your positive pants on uh, you know, and, and move forward. I mean, I, I understand why it happened, of course, but there's not a lot of dwelling to do unless you severely overdid your training and came in injured, or you, for some reason were under rested, or there was some obvious glaring reason that you, you couldn't complete. Obviously that needs to be addressed, but for the most part, like throw yourself a little bit of a bone in that regard and try not to let that linger on too long in your psyche. If the fact is it was the only option for you or the smart option for you that's that's by no means um embarrassing in my opinion yeah i agree with that and here's where first combat sport analogy is going to come in Mm -hmm. i look at a regular loss like losing by decision like sometimes you just get beat sometimes you get robbed sometimes things don't go well sometimes you don't have a day and you just lose boxing and mma you just can't win them all same thing Mm -hmm. in running it happens sometimes that sets you back mentally knowing there's someone better than you out there sometimes you get beat so convincingly it's really difficult to handle but it's a loss but dnfing is like getting knocked out and there are two types of knockouts there are flash knockouts when you get caught on the chin and your brain just shuts off it short circuits and you go to sleep and you don't necessarily even take any damage You can get clipped in the right direction, right on the tip of your chin, and go out and not even have a bruise. And after something like that, sometimes people need to get back in and spar. 
you got to rest up a bit or they need to get back in and accept another fight because you start to think like, oh my goodness, that could just happen. And you're scared of getting hit. And sometimes you got to go get hit again. Yep. And so like cramping out or your foot thing, you got to take your time to heal, get right. And then you got to go back and prove that you can do it. But 100%. then there is the knockout that is a brutal, violent knockout where you are concussed and you take damage and you are worse for the wear afterwards. Like my DQ with, or my DNF with my cramping, a week later I won a race on the other side of the country. And like I said, I won my biggest prize purse ever. That's getting back on the horse. And that mm-hmm. got that last race right out of my system. I moved on going into that race. I was hesitant afterwards. I thought I'm bulletproof again. And I moved on and I was fine for years. But when you take a concussion and you get knocked out bad, you have to be held back. You have to get back and you have to hit certain standards to prove that you're ready to A, re-enter the gym, B, re-enter sparring, and then C, re-enter a fight. And that's how a bad DNF is. The kind where you train for a long time for it and you go out there and you're utterly exposed and your mind is exposed and you quit badly. You may not be ready to race again right away. Sometimes you can Mm -hmm. jump right back into it and prove it wrong. And other times you've got to prove it through hitting some workouts, do a little psychopath training, see if you can handle that, hit some massive workouts and kind of get your feet back underneath you because you may not realize how deeply it's shaken you until you get into another situation and right away you want to quit. I uh, very much prescribe to that philosophy. In fact, so much so that, um, good analogy, by the way, I, uh, yeah, you're, you're on with those. They, uh, I had an athlete who DNF'd an ultra a few weeks ago. Um, I thought training up to that point had been impeccable. In fact, I thought it would be a podium performance and it turned into a run, into a walk, into a DNF at transition. Um, uh, this human has a four hour run on her schedule on Saturday. Mm -hmm. This is two weeks later and it's for very good reason. It's for the exact reasons. And I don't prescribe four hour runs ever. But this you has nothing to thirty, don't you? Three or three thirty. I usually, yeah. And and this this has a different. She she actually questioned me on it. And she said, "Why are you having me go out and do four hours?" And I basically said the exact same things to her that you just said to me about getting back and proving to yourself that either that was a fluke and showing yourself like, "Hey, I'm I'm ready." Because she was ready for it. It had nothing to do with under training. She's like, "Go back mm-hmm. out and pick that scab off, and let's just do it by spending time on feet and showing you that that wasn't you. You're not one race, right? You need to get back out there and." And proved yourself that, and she has another ultra coming up in two months. And so it's, it's like, okay, let's get you back before you need to really be back. And I agree with that, like, um, sentiment on top of that, that analogy, I think I'm always going to come back to the, look at the facts part. Mm -hmm. And, And again, you either, you either realize that you weren't prepared and you had no business being on that starting line and you set yourself up to fail and you stepped off course. Yes, because maybe you were weak minded, but you also weren't prepared that day. Or you really did, like in this athlete's case I'm talking about, she did everything right. She did everything I asked. She's a workhorse. But something didn't click and, and on that day, and then that, that also tells you that, well, then you have to approach things. There's two sides of that coin is what I'm getting at as far as moving forward. And so um, which one of those people are you, first of all? And what if I think the one that's the most worth diving into, which I want to I'll pawn off on you, is like because you've done this in self-admittedly just – walked off when you could have finished like the weakness factor that the perceived weakness factor like that's the athlete that i think is really inquiring 
right? The DNFer who just couldn't get it done that day and wasn't there and stepped off course. That's the athlete we need to speak to today more than anybody, right? Yeah. So what does that athlete do? Well, I think you start with the same checklist, which is how much damage was done to me. Because the one thing you can't do is return too quickly. If we look at the fighting example, there are two fighters who are kind of old school who transitioned into the new school. One was George St. Pierre and the other was Andre Orlovsky. And George St. Pierre was caught early in his career. He was already the champ and he got dropped by Matt Hughes and then finished. And he never was dropped again in his career. Never knocked out again. He took his time, put in a full training camp, came back, finished Hughes, and was never knocked out in his entire career. Retired, came back in at the next weight class up. He went from 170 to 185, which is the biggest weight, uh, the second biggest weight jump um, outside of heavyweight. So he went up to big boys and did not get dropped. Got clipped a little bit, but his chin held up for the next 10 years. And then mm-hmm. Andre Orlovsky, he's a heavyweight. He was a monster for years. He got knocked out for the for in the UFC towards the end of his perceived career, and he came back and for like the next four or five fights started getting dropped with everything, glancing blows, straight jabs, or dropping them, buckling them. His chin was gone, and he left the organization. Took some time, came back, and he's still fighting. He's like forty three now, and he hasn't been dropped in three fights. So what both of these guys did is they regained their chins, but they did it in two different styles. One, his chin got worse and then worse and then worse to the point where a jab dropped him. And then he took time and rehealed his mind and his brain and got his body back together. And then his chin came back. Whereas George did it right away. He took the time and got it. So right away, you have to decide how much damage was really done. Mm -hmm. The first time I quit, the first time, like at OCR Worlds, when I quit and walked off course 100 yards from the finish because I was no longer going to be top five. I had only been there to win or be top three. I was coming in in fourth place to the finishing gauntlet, and I could still maybe move up to third, maybe, and then I failed an obstacle, and then I failed it again, and now I'm in fifth, and then I moved to sixth, and I gave up my band and walked off because sixth place would look worse to me Mm -hmm. than DNFing. And that, that was the day I had to decide how much damage was done to me. Am I going to come back even chinnier than I was? Or I'm going to quit even earlier next time? Maybe two miles in if I'm not feeling it, I'm going to walk off the course? Or was this a flash knockdown and I'm fine and I can get back to it? And I spent all night trying to decide what that was. So I think people have to realize, look at the facts. How much damage did you really take? And is it worth it to get into it now? Or do you need to go through the whole protocol? Yep, that's exactly right. How much damage so how do you did know you that? take? You don't. I think you just, you, you either want to go back and improve them and yourself, right or wrong, depending on how you look at it, or you're so deflated you just need to decompress for a little while and step away. I think there's no right answer in that case. That's a intuition thing. I mean, most of the time with the DNF, you're one of two things. You're either undertrained or you're overtrained. Anywhere in the middle ends up getting you to the finish line. And so really it's deciphering, okay, well, you know, am I undertrained or am I overtrained? And if you can't really point to either, and it really is your mind, then you got to figure out how, how that callus wasn't, wasn't made in training, which again, I don't, if you go in hungry, um, and properly tapered, it's just not very, 
it's not very typical to see a, a DNF. And so I think you need to delineate like what, what was the reasoning behind mm-hmm. this? Like, can we point at my training, either the overtrained or undertrained? And for some reason I just was still tired. And then my mind went along with it. You know, overtraining syndrome is real and you just, you're emptying the mind and the body. Was that the case? Or was I just undertrained? My body started feeling like shit and then I caved mentally. Or was it solely just like you didn't want to be there anymore, which happens a lot. People train for months and they build it up and suddenly they're out on course. Um, Justin Grunewald, uh, who we had interviewed early on in our podcast, who um, I respect, went up to run the Superior Trail 100 last fall. His wife, Amanda Basham, came up, brought the kids. He had a whole support crew. This was a big deal for him. This is what he was training for for months. Stepped off course like 37 miles in. Just didn't want to be there anymore. Didn't want to even be out there. He was a bit embarrassed. He had no real reasoning. I'm sure he's figured it out. I'd like to ask him, but it can happen to the best of us. But the reason is really I'm sure he's dissected what that cause was to step off course. Hmm. Um, usually it's some sort of fatigue of the mind in my opinion. But yeah, I'm talking myself in circles, but it's it's really what you all have to do in order to figure it out. Well, you touched on three things. It's either lack of fitness, fatigue of the mind, or lacking a callus somewhere. Yeah. And I think we should look at my DNFs because I can speak to those easier than others. So that OCR World Championship one where I was sitting in fourth, fell the fifth, fell the sixth, and quit. That night I was doing my soul searching. I was talking to my brother who was there. I was talking to my wife. Uh, People were bashing me online on the facebook forums everything like it, it was a it was the full experience of a dnf in real time i was getting it from every angle including myself yep. and i came to the conclusion that my fitness was good my mental toughness was good but i didn't have a callus built up in one spot and it was actually a, more of a skill i approached that obstacle the wrong way and when i blew it the first time i didn't have the grip to make it through the second time and then that brought out the maybe I mentally, the callus mentally wasn't there to be able to withstand that type of finish line trauma. Trauma is mm-hmm. dramatic, but it felt traumatic in the moment to be exposed right at the finish line. So in that moment, I decided I'm going back out and I'm racing tomorrow the team race mm-hmm. with the sole purpose of doing better right there and the team race that year was a pair of two went out and did the entire course and handed off the timing chip to two more who did the entire course so i got to do everything again and i got to race that entire race with this final obstacle is called tip of the spear in the back of my mind knowing that i can do everything right but waiting third to the end at the finish line in the gauntlet was tip of the spear and i went in and i flew right through it and i've never felt better that year than crossing that line Mm. knowing monkeys off my back I'm good. My fitness is strong. I raced day two just as fast as day one. My grip held up, but now I have a a callus built up, more of a skill callus, but I can get through that situation now. And I know in the future how to approach something like that. And I know now that instead of throwing myself at it five times in a row, I should have done it once, hopped off, reassessed it, taken a second, Mm -hmm. and then nailed it. So in that time, I assessed that there was no damage taken. I had screwed up and I could do better and I can get right back on the horse. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is an opportunity for people to really do that in races when you can honestly say it was a fluke. I can do better. I think it comes down to people being a damn baby, meaning not to be too hard on you, but meaning like, oh, you realize your race has crumbled because you're not, it's not mm-hmm. going the way you want it to. So you just take the 
the cowardly way out and step off course because that's yeah. the easy way out. And now I'm not meaning to be harsh on you or anybody. You should be. I deserved it. But that's – well, you don't deserve that. But, but what I'm saying is like that callous of like things aren't going your way and now you realize like everything you've hoped and dreamed and worked towards for the last six or months or years isn't going to come to fruition like you want. And you're in the moment out on course realizing that it is not your day. Like that is the most important callous and example to show is to stay out there and cross that finish line. I think honestly – I've had a run of good races. The best thing for me and my mental calluses was two failures two days in a row in Jacksonville and going out to San Luis Obispo where I planned to be top 10, maybe top five. I was moving well to still running hard and trying to respect myself enough to finish hard. And I did in all three of those races. And looking back, like I thought about giving up in the middle of that and just jogging it in or stepping off course because what the heck's the point, mm-hmm. Right. But damn it, like those things are important. And I'm guessing if you're a DNFer, if you're one of those who DNFs or is DNF'd, think about in your workout when you DNF'd when it wasn't going the right way or when things got tough. Or think about the corners you cut mentally. You've already opened that door somewhere and you don't even probably realize it. You probably opened that door in your training and it was just the right situation that brought it out on race mm-hmm. day. I, I would yeah. be willing to bet my bank account on it. So like step one is practice what you intend to do in your race, which means like, no, no, you got six by a mile on your calendar. You're going to go do six by a mile. Again, there's extenuating circumstances and pulling the plug makes sense on rare occasion. However, in my opinion, it starts there. Step off the the racetrack once you're likely to do it again. Mm -hmm. That's what I I think. No, I agree with that. Now the second embarrassing DNF I had was the Tahoe ultra. It was embarrassing for multiple reasons. One is that I ran you and a third of the field. I will just say the conditions there were pretty brutal, and hypothermia is a real thing. And only you know if you were on your way to hypothermic or not. I'm just going to give you that because it's deserved. It was tough conditions, and and I could have finished. Now, would I have gone hypothermic? I don't know. But here are the facts I had in my mind. First, well, even going back previously to what I was about to say is I ran my mouth about this race. Not in a bad way, but I talked about it on this podcast about the training I was doing and what my goals were going out there. And I was going out there to win that. It was going to be my triumphant return to OCR in the worst possible venue for me. Mm -hmm. Runnable mountain altitude. That's all of my weaknesses rolled up into one. I'm a better power hiker than mountain runner. I am better flat than mountain, and I am better at short than long. So a mountain ultra at Tahoe was like everything I could do against me. I was going to come out and conquer it all at once and say I'm back and I'm a new person. And I DNF'd, and that's that was so embarrassing. But in the moment, what went through my mind was this. I would made it through the first lap. I left transition in third place. I got my leader bib on. Everything had gone wrong, and I, in terms of feeling bad, I started feeling bad about mile 10, and 10 through like 14, which was transition, was pretty miserable, but I worked hard the whole time. I came in, nailed my transition, had the, I think the second fastest, because Chris Brown didn't do anything other than grab another water bottle and go on, mm-hmm. but the second fastest transition I passed someone in transition, actually, and left out in third and ran down second by the top of the mountain. 
and things were going my way, even though they weren't all going great. I wasn't failing obstacles and I was staying tough. But the first time coming out of the swim was brutal. We had snow flurries at the top of the mountain. It was barely double digits up there. It was so windy and it took me a good quarter mile till I could function again coming out of the swim. It took me a quarter mile to zip my jacket up because my fingers weren't working. Yeah. As I'm running, I never stopped. Like I stayed down, foot pedal to the metal going. It took me a half mile of running downhill after that before I even felt competent again at life. So I knew how bad it was and now I'm three hours later into the day, gone 20 some miles, three and a half hours, I think. And I fell off of ape hanger when my glove ripped, just ripped off my hand. And I, it was the only thing I had on the bar as I was swinging through, there was no chance of staying on. And I fell and I submerged in the water, which was very cold. And then I had to go through the barbed wire crawl, which all the open waivers were in. I couldn't move. And I started cramping and shivering. So in my mind, I'm starting to show symptoms of pre-hypothermia. I started like convulsing in my gut to like dry heaving mm-hmm. and retching up at the top of the mountain. And now the swim's coming up and the swim is going to be my kiss of death. Instead of making it tap me out, I quit right there. Now, they canceled the swim lap too. I was a quarter mile from that swim and I didn't know they had canceled the swim. <laughs> So if I go down and run that quarter mile down to where the sandbag is right near the swim and I get word from the volunteers, I work the sandbag, I warm up on the sandbag, and then I get mm-hmm. back to work. And mm-hmm. I was still in third place, maybe fourth, and I'm going to probably run people down because I'm not going to fail anything else. But I quit before it made me quit. And in hindsight, it looks a lot worse because there was no swim. In the moment, I thought there is no way I survived that swim. Mm-hmm. I'm already dry heaving and shaking. I can't get back in that water. So those were my facts. But the reality is I didn't find out. And what I found out that day in addition to that was that once top three was gone, I didn't want to be there anymore. Mm-hmm. So I was fit. I was calloused to the task, but I was calloused in line with my goal. Exactly. And I had the wrong goal for being out there. As soon as that goal was gone, I had no side no side piece callus no backup callus no alternative callus i was a one trick pony out there and when that trick was taken away i didn't see anything through so that was the damaging one that one took me a long time to even want to do another ocr because i kept thinking back to sitting on the top of the mountain knowing well if i can't go top three nothing about this is fun to me i don't want to be out here Mm-hmm. that's the that's, dangerous one that's the one i was talking about and that's I, the I, one where what's the right answer for what you do after that? How long do you take? Because that's dangerous to know my passion, that flame just flickered. And it could go out at any moment. Yeah. If you were in the lead, would you kept going in that yeah. moment? Objectively, no questions asked. I would have gone first, second, or third. I think I was in fourth. I think I had got passed while I was doing my penalty loop. Had I been in the podium position, I would have gone until I got passed or got pulled off the course. Yeah. And that's the issue. Yeah. I was only as tough as my position allowed me to be. That's when most of them happen. It's exactly the key. So what do you do then? I don't know what you do then. I've never done that. But (laughs) I walked away and tried high rocks. 
So what do we say to the person who had a traumatic experience? Is that the answer? Go stoke your, your, your fire somewhere else until you get that back and then come on back. Is that how you rest your chin up and rest your brain from your concussion? Do you go try something else? Do you back away or do you get right back to training and tell yourself it'll never happen again? It's not a one size fits all answer. It sure would be nice if it was. It really would. Some people need need to rub their nose in it like a dog who shits on the floor. You're like, look what you did, you know? People do that to themselves all the time. They rub their nose in it by going out and beating themselves further into the hole and just being like, you're going to pay for this by doing it again and proving prove the, stubborn, the stubborn side of people comes out. And then the other side is that deflated, what's the point, I suck, mm-hmm. which also isn't true, but you can kind of take one of two routes. Most people don't fall in the middle too much i would imagine it's one of the two and i, I don't know if i have huh <laughs> i pounded myself the next day you I did got 10 miles and like oh yeah you were out on course over, watching us race and i made myself hammer every step i took mm-hmm. to see if my legs truly were done or if there was more <clears throat> and then i deflated and went away and didn't race another spartan race for over a year well, COVID happened. Right after that, we had the COVID year, and High Rocks was still putting on races at times. And I wasn't ready to race either way. Well, you know what I'm saying, though. So I do. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe you have some more insight on that, but I think that's when you're just going to have to know it comes to you. I don't think the right answer is, like, I don't think the right answer is staying away completely, like avoidance then moving forward. I don't think that's necessary. Like you're so embarrassed and ashamed that you can't go show your face out in that avenue again. I don't think that's the right answer. That's not going to help you grow as an athlete. Um, and I don't think you did that. You've run ultras since and you've, you know, you've squashed that in a sense. But um, maybe there's comfort in knowing there isn't a right answer. Yeah. The only answer is you have to be truly, brutally honest with yourself about how much damage was done. I took mental damage that day and I had to Mm -hmm. confirm that. And I had to go through a block of ultra training where I put bigger, find my weakness workouts in there to prove myself that I don't just quit when pace goes out the window. I had to design some workouts that weren't about beating something or someone. It was about get to a bad place and now you've got to sit in it. So I had to identify what really did I expose? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that leads us, unless you have something to say here. No, go ahead. I think that leads us to what do you do when you have a good race? Because these answers are the same. Well, yeah, and looking at the clock here, we're going to have to spend less time on this one significantly. I think it's short because we talked about this a bit. Well, I think the the biggest thing, and I'm sure you got points you're ready to jump in with, but the biggest thing after you have a good race is a lot of people start looking at like, the secret sauce of that last week or two leading up. They forget about the entire body of work that has been done to get them to that point. And they say, oh, I do this workout the week of a race and I had a good race. So I'm going to do this exact workout now every time. And and they, they look at like the really close snapshot leading up to the race and they very easily forget about all the non sexy, flashy stuff that they've done all the way up to build the foundation to get them to that point. And so a lot of people after a good race, one, try to just keep repeating the last few weeks leading into their good race, which then sets them up for stagnation and then ultimately mm-hmm. disappointment. So they just try to replicate what did that race for them over and over. And they lose sight of all the other shit they did really that they built those last three weeks of workouts upon. And so people can get a little clouded um, 
with their training after a good race and get really stuck in like a, a narrow hallway. Mm-hmm. And I see that happen more than any other scenario after a good race. And so that's like the first like red flag or warning sign. I want to tell people after yeah. you have a good race, like don't get stuck in your most recent few weeks of training. Um, that's not what got you that great performance. No, that's a hundred percent right. There's nothing to even add to that mm-hmm. is you just, you can't be tunnel vision about your recency bias, what you did exactly. recently that did this. You can't do that. You have to know your full picture. So I don't even have anything to add to that. And we've talked about that on previous, uh, in that post high rocks episode that you cannot just repeat your peaking workouts. That yep. isn't what got you here. The second thing that you have to do is not forget the actual thing that got you there. I mean, I guess it's more really part of that one, but at expense of what went wrong. So you have to be accurate about what went wrong too. That same question of the ultra is what damage did I really take? You have to know that in a victory as well. You have to be able to look at the victory and not let it get glossed over by what went right. Because things still announce themselves in training. You have to find new pieces of hunger to work on. And that's important. But Chael Sonnen said the other thing about combat sports today that got me thinking about, and it backed up what you said. There's a guy who just left his camp, Edmund Shabazian. He just left Ronda Rousey's camp. Ronda Rousey was the first women's UFC champion. Mm-hmm. And he left to go train in Las Vegas. And what Chael said is, don't forget what got you there. Let's say you're in a camp that's grappling heavy and you've got a monster grappler and every day he puts you on your back. And every day you're fighting this guy and fighting this guy and you keep getting clipped on your feet in fights. So you switch camps and you go to a striking-based camp because your grappling is so good. You just have to fix your on-the-feet striking and you're going to be unstoppable. And you get to your next fight eight weeks later and you get put on, you get dumped on your butt and you can't get up and you realize, oh, shoot. It's not that I'm the greatest grappler. It's that I train grappling every day. But because I only saw that there was one issue that needed to be fixed... I went all in on the issue and I forgot about, I've grappled every day for the last three years. Now you don't do that for eight weeks. You're rusty. You get dumped on your butt and you can't get up. And that's training right there. Oh, I just need more foot speed. I stop my hill workouts. I stop my strength workouts. I lower my volume and I just run speed work, speed work, speed work. I get to the next race and I can't climb or descend. Like the things you know to be true about yourself are only true as long as you keep doing the things that you do to make those things true about yourself. Yeah. So leave nothing behind, but you also can't forget that things went wrong. Getting a win or a PR or a good place does not mean you're set. Yeah, uh, kick, uh, take off the rose tinted glasses because they're so easy to put on after you have a good race or you win. Like, yes, of course, like it's going to cloud the areas that still need improvement, and so you take a mm-hmm. win. But you acknowledge, like any athlete that truly continues to get better throughout their career, um, still knows what they need to work on. And so you're exactly right. Like, take off those rose tinted glasses. Like, yes, enjoy your successes for that next mm-hmm. day or week or whatever that, that effort requires um, or warrants, sorry. But um, you are exactly correct. Let's still find things that, you know what, though? If Bracken Cracker was in the race, I think I might have lost because of X and Y. Luckily, he wasn't here today, so I won. Mm -hmm. But it's not always going to be this way. And so what do I need to improve upon? I could not agree more with that. And most people, again, um, don't often dissect like that. Yeah. It's important. If blank were here is such a powerful question. 
It really is. There's two questions I asked myself mid-race and post-race. And the mid-race question is, if it goes wrong, is this why? And then I try to discard it and move on, but remember it for later. I'll, I'll get through a carry or a crawl and think, well, if I lose, this could be why. And I store that in the memory bank for, I didn't do great at that. And it wasn't a decision. I just, I'm not good at it. But the second one, I used to always think I could be winning a race by 10 minutes back in the day because there was no one there. And I think if Hobie were here, what would have just happened there? And that, that thought, yeah. if blank were here, would I be as successful? So if you can think about those two things in the moment, afterwards you have action points, even if it gets glossed over by, oh, someone missed their spear and I won. Well, that's not as much of your win as it is their loss. Yeah. And you have to approach it that way. Yeah. The other thing I would say after having a good race, depending um, uh, where you're at, but there is a there is an argument to be made about just rocking and rolling sometimes. Like, you know, like I've been on three-week tears where nothing can go wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes that it use that momentum to hop into another one. If, you, if you're excited and ramped up and that really is fuels you, there's nothing wrong with pivoting a little bit, knowing that you're going to end up paying for this down the road, but saying, you know what? I can feel it. It's time to race. And then you mm-hmm. pick out something the next weekend and the next weekend, and you go on a three-week tear before you recover re- and start a little bit of a rebuild. I don't think there's anything wrong with riding a wave in that regard. I think if you're feeling it and it's exciting to you and you want to go puff your chest out and stroke your ego a little more and go see what you can do right now because things are feeling good, let it rip. Go feel good again. Go set a new PR. Do another race and and if you're really that high on life and you've had that good one like go for it i think that's okay you have to have a plan after that don't get me wrong it's going to be it's not going to live forever never does yeah but just make sure you know how to come out of that but anyways i think that's like a green light situation i think the most powerful performance enhancing drug is confidence Mm -hmm. people will say and my brother will argue this with me all the time there's no such thing as momentum it's entirely fabricated by our mind and i don't care You see people get momentum and you see what it does to them. People go on a tear sometimes for no other reason than they believe they're on a tear. Mm -hmm. People get hot in in a sport, a a quarterback, a a shooter, a hitter, and they walk up there already knowing I've already won. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to crush this. That's not a measurable, tangible thing, but when you feel it, it's as real as can be. And sometimes you just got to, like you said, ride it out knowing that, when it comes back down, I've got to take some time and get back on track. But until then, those are rare moments. And when you're yeah. when you have momentum and you're on a tear, yeah, sometimes you just got to live a little. Yeah, do Re- it. Wrench will always come due. It always does. Yeah, but it, it's also short lived, and that window also is fleeting sometimes. And so if you think you're in that window, yeah, I agree with you. Go for it. I'll still never forget. I think I raced four weekends in a row in my 2017, and I had a. I went to Chicago and won my first Spartan races back to back. Heck, my first podiums. And I was like, you know what? I'm feeling so. I'm going to run a 5K road race the next weekend. Hopped in that, PR'd, ran like 1540 solo. Then I was like, you know what? I got Lambeau Field coming up. Screw it. I'm going to do that the next weekend. And then after that was like Palmerton. And I was like, you know what? Bing, bing, just hit them. And I did it. And there's some of my best races to date, still some of my best memories because I yeah. knew when to strike when the iron was hot. It did come due for me. And I ended up bombing a TMX later and feeling like crap for two or three weeks straight. But I'm glad I took advantage of it when I did. No. I'm sure you've had those back in your original years. 
That's how I ended college track. I PR'd three times in like five days in the 800. Amazing. And then went out a week later and ran, I think, a 1639 5K. <laughs> like I was on fumes at the end of the year, but I was rolling and I had speed and I knew it and I had tapered for five weeks and I had no volume left underneath me and I was shot, but I could race. And I just raced on Monday and I raced on Wednesday and I raced on Friday and I PR'd three times. And by the end, I couldn't even break 16 in a 5K. It's amazing. Because <laughs> I was so shot. But I knew, like, put me on the track. I'll keep PRing until you take this away. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just ride that wave. I wish we could talk more about this, Bracken. All good things must come to an end. This is Maud's fault. It is Maud's fault. That, you know, Maud is a distraction. She is. Um, but worth the, worth the time investment we made in her. Um, anything that you want to wedge in there real quick that comes to mind? Just reiterate what we started with. You have to be honest with yourself post DNF and post good race. Assess the damage, show yourself the facts, revisit it again 24 hours later and then another 24 and everything still holds true. Then you can make an informed decision, but you need to know the facts. Yeah. That's always what it comes down to. I think. When you're making decisions after a race, no matter how it goes. Keep it simple. Bowtie, putting it on there. Clip it on. It's been clipped. Abrupt end. Abrupt. Abrupt.